You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. The thing that is so amazing to me is, is the way that Sue's responded to this disease. It's really important to her to be connected with people, and her attitude is just astonishing, amazes me every day. And not just me, but there's a wide swath of people that she inspires over and over and over again. Our community has come forth with a lot of love and kindness in response to her, missing her everyday presence set you know, the volunteer work that she did and the like. And I think the thing that that really we all miss the most is her voice. We can't hear her on a daily basis. And she can't express herself and sing like she used to. It's a very quiet household. But we have to be willing to pay attention to ourselves. We have to be willing to step in that fire and feel whatever it is we need to feel. Tend to, tend to ourselves, tend to the shadow, tend to the darkness, tend to the uncertainties. I continually learn to ask for that assistance, to ask for that help. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 137, ALS, airing for the first time on Sunday, April 27, 2014. Today's guests include Kate Goller, Roy Bouchard, and Ron Hoffman. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is a disease of the nervous system that causes problems with muscle control and function. Also called Lou Gehrig's disease, it is considered a rare disease by national standards, but is nonetheless thought to impact 30,000 Americans at any given time. It is invariably fatal. In the May issue of Maine Magazine, I wrote about artist John Imber and the challenges he has faced as a result of his ALS diagnosis. Today, we speak with Kate Goller and Roy Bouchard, family members of Sue Goller, an individual with ALS, and with Ron Hoffman of Compassionate Care ALS. We hope our conversation gives you insight into what it means to be impacted by this disease and how we might use this lens when thinking about wellness in our own lives. Thank you for joining us. I had the good fortune to spend time with Jill Hoy and John Imber in their home in Massachusetts and observe um, what John was going through in his relatively recent diagnosis of ALS. Today I am with Kate Goller and Roy Bouchard who have been dealing with ALS in the family since 2010. Kate Goller is the sister and Roy Bouchard is the husband of Sue Goller. Sue has been living with ALS herself 
since 2010. Kate is a nurse working in women's health at Maine Family Planning in Augusta. She and her husband, Stu, have three grown daughters. Roy is a lakes biologist, now retired from the Department of Environmental Protection, and is Sue's Maine caregiver. He spent decades working all over Maine, monitoring and improving water quality. He and Sue have a son and a daughter in their early 20s. The two families have lived next door to one another for more than 30 years. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to me today. Thanks, Dr. Lisa. And I know it was an effort for you to come in because taking care of Sue and working with Sue is, um, it's a very collaborative process in your family. It is. It, it uh, largely, uh, Roy is by far the, uh, the main caregiver. Um, but uh, to come here today, a lot of pieces had to be put together uh, by Roy. So, I think one of the things that you, you rapidly learn is that uh, the value of friends and family uh, is paramount. And in speaking with uh, ALS patients that don't have that kind of support network in the community or in their family, uh, you realize how fortunate you are because they are truly uh, dire straits dealing with it sometimes. And I have, I have a lot of support. So It helps also to have a family that was close before the diagnosis took place, and which it sounds like you must have been if you lived next door to each other for <laughs> this amount of time. Yes, and our brother lives next door to me, so there's three families uh, all in one uh, uh, place um, spread out over the top of a hill, uh, and uh, we've um, we've all made our homes there, raised our kids there. The kids all grew up together, and uh, so they're close as cousins. And and uh, it's um, it, you know before before Sue uh, before Sue's diagnosis, it, it might have been weeks between us seeing each other, but if anything happened, if any of us needed anything, we would just pick up the phone and, and the rest of us would be right there. So um, we, are, we are a really tight bunch. And, then, and, you know, a testament to that is the fact that her three grown daughters come back all the time and Brother John's um, daughters come back all the time and our kids are usually in and out uh, so we see the rest of the extended family yep. and cousins and everything else on a regular basis which is really important too. Kate, your daughter Emily works here as the assistant publisher of Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design and when she heard that we were doing an ALS show she said you know you really should talk to my family because my Aunt Sue has had this for several years. And it's been an interesting experience from what I hear because it's um, ALS is not a disease that we have a cure for yet. No, uh, and I'm not sure I would use the term interesting in the sense of something that you would want to find out more about. I wish nobody had to learn anything about this um, disease. But not only do we not have a cure, but uh, we, they don't even really know, uh, understand uh, what the mechanisms are for this uh, disease. And indeed, it may be a constellation of diseases. Um, it may not just be, it may not be just one disease. Um, <clears throat> it's a neurodegenerative disease that's progressive, uh, and um, they've uh, uh, found a genetic component, but that only affects about 5% of people with ALS. And the research is active, but it's uh, it, 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 there are so many uh, there's so far to go from in the understanding. We really don't understand what this disease um, mechanism is yet. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of effort in trying to find uh, biological markers in blood serum or proteins or whatever, uh, or environmental cues that might uh, common environmental cues that might trigger. 
um, the expression of the disease, but as Kate said, if it truly is a constellation of diseases or causes that end up at, at this more or less the same endpoint, um, then we're really dealing with uh, a multiple, um, a, a multiply uh, driven kind of situation where the, disease, the research is much more difficult. And so there's a lot of emphasis on epidemiology, looking at the population, the distribution, um, common factors that relate to the onset of disease, and only now are they starting to statistically tease out some possible air, uh, things like geographic location that might contribute to some cases. So we're really early in the in the, that kind of uh, investigation, and, and the understanding of the physiology, which is key to developing any kind of treatments, let alone a cure, um, is hardly in its infancy yet. So there's a long ways to go. Unlike many other degenerative diseases where there is at least some understanding of the basic mechanism, right. it's, it's pretty opaque right now. And it's thought of as a rare disease, but I don't really think it is. I think uh, at any one time there aren't, an, you know, there may be a fewer number of people with ALS than with other uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, but um, that's uh, largely because people with ALS don't have a very long life expectancy. Um, and, I, you know, in in talking with people, it's... Uh, I know I know an awful lot of people who know somebody in their life uh, uh, who's been affected by this disease, and um, it's uh, it is uh, the the um, the ramifications of a family member uh, with this disease are so enormous, um, and I can't even I've never even been able to really um, imagine what what Sue's actually going through. It's profound. The, 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 the expression of this is, is you have not just the person with the disease that's affected. And you know anyone who has a serious ongoing disease, it, the, the, there's a ripple effect. It spreads first to the, to the families, and then it spreads to the community, and then to the economics. Um, and ALS is particularly this way. Um, again, the short duration of the disease, you know, the average life expectancy is three to five years. That's an average. But the point is that the person's influence in the community is reflected by their response to mm -hmm. um, that person no longer being around to do what he or she did. And and you start to see the value of people in the community as persons, the you know, the interconnectedness and the ties and the friendships and the, the huge cost to society of a disease like this that can't be ameliorated. People, you know, not only lose opportunities for themselves, but the community is impoverished by this. So it's a it's a huge drain, and you don't really uh, appreciate it until you have to live with yeah. with, with it in the family, for example. So um, our our community has come forth with a lot of 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 love and kindness and response to her missing her everyday presence. At you know the volunteer work that she did and the like, um, and. I think the thing, I'm rambling on, but the thing that, that really we all miss the most is her voice. Mm -hmm. We can't hear her on a daily basis, and she can't express herself and sing like she used to. Um, it's a very quiet household now. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Sometimes I meet with married or partnered clients, and when we get to talking about their financial lives, a cultural divide bubbles to the surface. 
One person feels one way about their money, and the other seems to be on their own financial island with a set of beliefs and rules that have created unnecessary borders and boundaries. It's not an uncommon thing, and when I hit those situations, I do my best to help both people understand that neither is 100% right or wrong, that they simply have to take a step back and look at their own financial life in a new light. It is also true in politics and economics. What we need to do is see money as a living thing that can be used to grow our lives together without disagreement or so-called border issues. It's a great feeling for me. It's like I'm helping people negotiate peace treaties with their money. Be in touch if you want to know more. Tom at Shepherd Financial Maine will help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Dream Kitchen Studio by Matthew Brothers. Whether your style is contemporary, traditional, or eclectic, Their team of talented designers are available to assist you in designing the kitchen or bath of your dreams. For more information, visit www.dreamkitchenstudio.com. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. So this person that you're describing still is with you? She's just just with you in a different way. She cannot move her muscles, but um, she is totally there. Uh, That's one of the most compelling things about this um, uh, condition is that although it uh, eventually leads to um, paralysis, the mind is not affected and is exactly as sharp and acute as ever. And in Sue's case, that is means of the high order. And, you know, sense of humor is intact. And, uh, you know, Roy was saying how she could take a ribbing, but she could also give it back. And, and so her mind is, is very entirely sharp and unchanged. The, the, the thing her personality is, is unchanged. The personality is unchanged. I mean, That's, the outward manifestations are, are really not, and that teaches us other things about, you know, value of outward manifestations and actions and things, that what we normally take as the outer shell is really not what's going on. It's the inner shell and the nuance and the glint in the eyes and things like that That's that make right. a difference. The, the, what she has done with this is, as Kate's alluded to, is, is quite amazing. Uh, I have seen other people in with other diseases that have sort of given up. And she decided that, she, literally, I'm not going to give up. I know I can't be cured. I know this thing's going to kill me eventually. Um, I'm going to be, she's a statistician, among other things. There's this, not just a bell curve, but there's a skewed distribution. There's people on the low end of the life expectancy, high end of the life expectancy. She says, I'm going to do whatever I need to to keep a high quality of life and be on the outer end of that bell curve. 
and be around for, I'm going to beat the odds for a while, but I know it's going to get me. And that's the same attitude of persistence and planning, thinking ahead, and always trying not to be a burden on other people. That has kept her going. Yeah. And she's a sense of adventure. I mean, just the last two <laughs> weekends we went up to Sugarloaf, and she slid in the main adaptive ski program. She went skiing. She went skiing. <laughs> They put her in a sit sled, specially designed. They put her on a leash. <laughs> Never thought I'd see Susan on a leash. <laughs> and skied her down the mountain at Sugarloaf. And uh, they're amazing volunteers, wonderful people. But they just love to have her there because she got down to the end freezing cold, just spray all over her face and just frost, and she was just grinning. Grinning from ear to ear, yeah. When I was writing the story about Jill Hoy and John Imber, and I spent time with John and with their family, and he's an artist from Maine, and this is in the um, in an upcoming issue of Maine Magazine. I also spoke with um, the wife of Dr. Bruce Churchill. Mm-hmm. Who, Cindy. Yeah. Cindy, and he was one of my teachers. He passed away of ALS, and it was a really difficult thing for me to do it was maybe and I've been a writer a long time mm-hmm. I've been a doctor quite a while mm-hmm. it was it was really difficult because it's a it's there is there's it's this place of uh, groundlessness mm-hmm. there's no answers as a doctor there's nothing I can do it it's a it just brought up all these feelings for me mm-hmm. and I imagine that if you're if you have this network of people in the community who are coming in to help with Sue and I imagine that you and Sue have had to deal with other people and their own stuff around ALS. Mm-hmm. How has that been for you? Well, uh, I, I think that uh, because of who Sue is, it's been, um, it's been a journey that everybody's willing to go on. Uh, it, does, uh, it, it does have an element of... Um, not surrender, but there isn't there. You do have to kind of let go of, uh, and you know, Roy and I are both scientists, as is Sue, of course. So you know, trying to understand it when there really isn't, you can only understand a little tiny piece of it. Um, that's you know, that's uh, that can be frustrating, and of course, the 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 um, initial impulse to want to actually do something when um, there isn't really anything you can do. Uh, <clears throat> And but people have just hung in there, mm-hmm. and and it's it's interesting because people initially will have a difficult time dealing with someone within a situation like this. They're very hesitant because it's almost like it, think of yourself uh, in the community and and seeing a person's visually impaired on the street. You don't know how to help them across the street. You don't know if they're sensitive to 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 being helped and the like and and what's the proper way to do it because you don't deal with folks every day like that. And so when someone's got a serious illness, folks have a hesitancy. They're they're worried about making a mistake when they care for them. They're worried about saying the wrong thing and bringing up images that will, you know, make them feel depressed or whatever. And that's the that's the brilliance of many of the people I've seen with ALS when I've had a chance to run into them, say, in conferences and the like, that they exude this, they're the people who haven't given up. They're the people who are still engaged. And they, they exude this way of making you feel comfortable with them, that they've accepted their lot to some extent. And 
their businesses to have something uh, resembling a good time mm -hmm. when they can and seize opportunities and it gives you a sense of perspective in your own life when you're much more petty problems are seeming to knock on your door every day and you say well this is nothing <laughs> I can work through this in five minutes rather than taking five days to mull over it because they solve problems all the time you know just trying to figure out how to keep your head from flopping over you know, is is a big deal. I you know? used to love to complain, but boy, I all the joy has gone out of complaining for me. I really can't do it anymore. With <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. You I mean, I still, I still do it, but oh, yeah, it know. doesn't take me long to get a reality check and uh, you know yeah. remind myself of what my perspective is. So, but it takes a lot of inner strength for people in a situation like that. Doesn't matter if you've got other a disease like Parkinson's or ALS or whatever. It takes a lot of inner strength to to keep hold of a, a joy in life. If it were joking on Sugarloaf when the when the uh, the, uh, the the skier that was going to guide her down the mountain says, "Well, you know, conditions are a little icy today, so I hope we avoid any trees." <laughs> and I looked at her and I said what she would have said. She says, "Well, you know, when we take the bark out of my teeth, I'll be able to identify <laughs> which tree it was that you hit." <laughs> you know. So, there you have it. She does. She every day she's looking for something to find joy in, mm -hmm. to enjoy. But it's one of these things with ALS that's that's it's it's important to recognize is that because there's no cure, there's no real treatment, a lot of energy goes into palliative work. That's Just right. trying to keep people together, keep them comfortable, keep their mental energy up. Um, and in the case of folks without a lot of support network, try to get the basics, just the basics there, so you can have a wheelchair, you need it, you have the caregivers you need. Um, and so the, a lot of energy goes into that. Um, and right now that's where the ALS community is focused. They have a dual focus with a national community working a lot on advocacy and, um, and, and research. And the local community is really focused on quality of life issues for the family and for, and for the people with ALS. Um, they're pals. They're people with, or patients with ALS. They're not just subjects. I believe there's an ALS walk that takes place every year. Right. Yes. And in Portland, it's September the 6th. And in Bangor, I think it's the 23rd of August. Yeah. Um, and both are really successful. Uh, I don't know about much about the one in Bangor. Um, a friend of ours was organizing her team up there. Just passed away from a different disease, but I know it's very active. We have relatives that actually mm -hmm. uh, walk mm -hmm. in it. Um, but the one down here is is a big deal. You know, over on marginal, not marginal. Um, Back Bay. Back Bay. Yeah. So in Sue's team there. is called the Subu Crew Kicks ALS, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, we were the top fundraising team for two years. We got eked out last year, but Sue is the top individual fundraiser for three years mm -hmm. in a row. And uh, she, she, you know, she has a natural competitive streak, so this, that's a good fit. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> but uh, it, it, and what this does is it draws the larger community, like the Chamberlains, you know, like uh, yes, or the Churchills rather. Excuse me, the Churchill family like it's huge. They've got yeah. a huge following. They raise yeah. a lot of money. People yeah. show up, and they reaffirm each other's friendship and you know kinship. Um, yeah. and it's a big deal. And so that's this extended network that's managed to draw in a lot of funding for a lot of it. Some goes to research. A lot of it to things like you know getting wheelchairs for people that don't have medical support, things like that, um, and just getting counseling and having people around that can connect you with 
what you need. So yeah, this, these walks are really big and they're a good occasion. Um, well, we have and like five or six hundred people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you feel like you're actually doing something. I mean, you are doing something. You're showing up, you're walking. Uh, so it's it, you're actually uh, physically doing something, um, and it it help helps um, stave off that feeling of uh, kind of you know helplessness. Yeah, ninety percent of life, right? Showing up. <laughs> That's right. It's a good way to do it. It really is. How can people find out more about? the ALS walk and about Sue's team? Well, the if one just simply searches for um, ALS walk Maine, they'll get right yep. to a link that takes them to either the Maine or the Portland walk, and also the Maine uh, New England chapter for the ALS Society is, um, has got a really nice website. It's got a lot of information, links to as deeply as you want to go into the current research and the thinking about how this works. Um, so that's a good place to start. So then I think the uh, national website is ALSA.org. Yeah. And then uh, our section is uh, ALSA Northern New England. Um, and it's, it is a really, it's a great organization. Um, uh, Sue and Roy had the opportunity uh, to go to D.C. a few years ago, uh, sponsored by this organization, and mm -hmm. do some advocacy down there. Um, and uh, um, we would love people to uh, to go and and uh, check out our team, or start their own team, or um, read all the different teams, and mm -hmm. and uh, pick one you like, and it's it's a really good effort. I appreciate you both coming in and talking to us today, and I appreciate Sue being with us. I think she is here. Yeah. Um, this is a tough disease, and I and I give you a lot of credit for, um, I guess, doing what you just have to do. You just have to do it. But I hope the people who are listening who might have a family member who has ALS or someone that in their lives that has ALS, I hope people will take the time to look more into these organizations you're talking about, maybe get involved in the ALS walk, and um, just be present. Show up as you've described it, because yeah. I think that's a very valuable, very yeah. valuable thing. We've been speaking with Kate Goller and with Roy Bouchard, and indirectly through um, both of them with Sue Goller. Thank you for coming in today. You're Thank welcome. You, Dr. Lisa. Appreciate it. Yeah. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I feel very fortunate to be a business owner in Maine. Unlike any other place I can think of, Maine is truly a community of connected people and businesses who really want to see each other succeed. And if my company can play even the smallest part in creating success for my clients, I am very grateful. That's what gets us excited at Booth, helping people see their vision become a reality. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, 
or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. ALS is a disease that I think as a healthcare provider I struggle with and I know most of my healthcare fellow healthcare providers also struggle with because it's something that we have yet to cure and aren't even necessarily completely certain how to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. Today we have with us uh, Ron Hoffman of Compassionate Care ALS. Ron is an individual who does deal with this on a day-to-day basis. Ron Hoffman founded Compassionate Care ALS and has served as executive director for the past 10 years. He helps support people living with ALS by coordinating needs evaluations, instructing on ALS disease progression and end-of-life care. He facilitates and guides intimate discussions with ALS patients and their families who are nearing death or actively dying. Ron is also the author of Sacred Bullet, Transforming Trauma to Grace While Tending the Terminally Ill, and is in the process of building an education and retreat center. Ron, thanks so much for coming in. Hmm. Thank you for having me. (laughs) We're very fortunate to have you because I know that you go all over the country um, with the work that you do, and you actually live in Massachusetts. Yeah, um, I've been in Falmouth since 1997 on a full-time basis. And we came to know you. uh, I know you've done work with families in Maine. Yes. um, But we came to know you through... Uh, Jill Hoy and John Imber, and an article that we have been writing about um, them and John Imber's struggle with ALS for Maine Magazine. So when I went to visit them in their Massachusetts winter home, they handed me a copy of Sacred Bullet, Transforming Trauma to Grace While Tending the Terminally Ill. And the person I was with, um, Kevin Thomas, who publishes Maine Magazine, he said, why is there a bullet? And what's the, what's the relationship between the bullet and what Ron Hoffman does? Uh-huh. I've read your book, so I know the answer, but why don't you tell our listeners? Wow. Um, Well, one way of uh, describing the bullet would be oftentimes, metaphorically speaking, um, in the world of ALS or any, you know, fatal or terminal illness, I think sometimes people looking for that silver bullet. And uh, for me, one piece about sacred bullet is just that it is a sacred bullet now obviously there's a part of my story (laughs) and i'm not going to share a whole lot of it with you but uh as a child i had an unfortunate experience uh you know with a shooting and uh, which uh pretty much uh permeated my life until i was uh you know willing to uh really take a look at it you know, it's just something I lived with my whole life. And uh, part of the book, you know, obviously, you know, was about that. You know, the book is a memoir. It's about my life. It's about uh, the work that I do. And uh, in the book, uh, it's, the book is uh, in four sections. The first one's called Showing Up. And in my experience and the things I've learned in the last 10, 11 years, and I've been doing this work since 1997 when I was a caregiver for Gordon. But what I've learned is the importance of showing up. Then, of course, the book takes you from there to uh, doing one's mending, or what we will call mending, and, uh, which is about my own inner work, my own uh, tending to myself, if you will. And then it goes into the next book, next chapter, called Tending. And then, of course, Overcoming 
So showing up, mending, tending, overcoming. And in my experience in all the years, um, I look at our healthcare system and I look at our physicians, and I know some incredible physicians, and there's some wonderful components of our healthcare system. Uh, but in my experience, the institutionalization of our healthcare gets in the way of our healthcare. And uh, from my perspective, uh, they can certainly put lots of money into it. But from where I sit and what I view is our system isn't going to change. Healthcare is not going to change unless we're willing to uh, bring the right type of support for the people who are in healthcare, the people doing the work. Uh, I sat for year, three or four years on the uh, Palliative Care and Hospice Federation Board in Massachusetts. So I got to learn a lot, and I'm a huge proponent, huge fan of the world of hospice, the world of VNA. And, uh, you know, a question that I often ask individuals, and I love speaking with nursing students and medical students, I'm really passionate about that, because that's where things will change. But the question I ask them, the question I ask neurologists, the question I put out there is, are you willing to do the work necessary on yourself in order to better tend to the people that you're serving? Sometimes people look at me like I have horns. <laughs> uh, they're not quite getting it. And just put another way, are you willing to do your own inquiry? Are you willing to address your own healing work? Uh, I firmly have a hunch that um, uh, that we all have trauma that resides in our bodies. And it doesn't have to be to the extent of the traumas that I experienced as a child and other parts of my life. You can get hit in the head with a hammer and have trauma in your body. Unless we're willing to pay attention to it, work with people in order to release it. You know, uh, so bringing that forth to health care. If you're not willing to do the work necessary on yourself, truly, how can you show up for people in catastrophic circumstances? So that's what my work is about, showing up, being present, listening, bearing witness to those circumstances. So are we not only willing to do the work on ourselves, but are we willing to go out there after we get our degrees, which I don't have, uh, from school, and continue that work, continue that education, because there's extraordinary people in the world, extraordinary programs in the world that are available. And one other piece is, you know, organizations, from my perspective, are only as innovative as its leadership allows them to be. And uh, for me, it's, um, you know, uh, I've gotten in trouble before, because along the way, there are people in healthcare that didn't quite understand what I was doing. You know, who is this guy out there? Or who does he think he is? Or some of my families would go in and share with them, well, you know, Ron Hoffman says this. Well, who is this guy? And so, again, there's extraordinary physicians and doctors in the world, and there's some wonderful components of healthcare. But unless we're really, really serious about bringing education and tending to the people who are doing the work, all right, especially in the world of hospice, because in the world of hospice, I mean, my book is also about a great deal about end of life. And, uh, you know, I, I've just seen too many times, it's, you know, all hospices are not created equal. For me, it's about who's walking in the door and what are they bringing with them. So tell me about Compassionate Care ALS. What does this organization do? do. 
yeah. What I don't do, and this is relevant to what I was just saying before, what I don't do is walk in and tell a family or individuals everything they don't want to know. And it happens far too frequently from healthcare. Uh, what I don't do is go in and tell people everything I think they should know. I've learned to leave my baggage at the door. So the things I don't do are the things that we do do. And I think what that allows to happen is, wow, somebody who's walking in the door who is just authentic and is not here to give me advice and to tell me what to do. So what we do do is bring physical, emotional, and spiritual care to the table, which can look very different from one family to the next, what we've created over the years. And, uh, you know, I will give credit to a chaplain named John Sharon, who worked for me some time ago. And he said, Ron, what you've created here is a relational model, and it's beautiful. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yes, that's exactly what's been created. Everyone is uniquely different. And until healthcare learns that, you know, there can be difficulties. You know, when I was taking care of Gordon back in 97 and 98, uh, what we learned together and what I learned is there was an incredible lack of support for individuals living with ALS. And I didn't, even at that time, didn't know what all that looked like or what it meant. I just knew something needed to be different. Uh, so as I honed my skills, because in the beginning, I really didn't know what I was doing. The seeds had been planted, and I knew there needed to be a different way, or there was just some lacking. And so uh, I learned as I went. And, you know, I learned that there was equipment out there that it made sense for us to buy because insurance certainly wouldn't cover it. Insurance covers your basics, you know? And so if we can attribute uh, or contribute some of what we bring and uh, put it into equipment, you know, just high-end, uniquely different things that bring quality and dignity into people's lives. So some of these things are maybe things like Lifts, lifts that enable well, people to Well, a lift to get... is a lift is not a lift. It's not a traditional Hoya lift. I mean, you know, and uh, that's what our system gives their manual. And oftentimes in the world of ALS, you're the person doing the tending to, the caregiver, the carer, uh, is incredibly exhausted. So here you have this manual lift from our healthcare system that, one, it's uh, very generic. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort. That said, some people make it happen and it, it works. And this is something that lifts an individual from the bed yeah, from to the bed the chair, to the chair, chair, from the chair to the bed. It allows someone, rather than to physically lift someone with a bear hug or under their arms, uh, it's an assist. But rather than bringing a traditional lift, you know, over the years I found some really high-end pieces, uh, some high-end lifts, if you will. Uh, we have what we call a medicine bag, which just has lots of really nice little items in there that make for really wonderful assists. And again, bringing dignity uh, to people's lives. Uh, oftentimes, people don't know where this stuff comes from. They don't even know it exists. Oftentimes, and one of the uh, downsides to the upside is, over the years, my friends in the world of hospice have seen all, I get all these calls. Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? 
So I have to take a deep breath and say, wow, okay, we'll do our best. But all of these are items that are out there, but rather than uh, people having to pay for it, uh, we've learned along the way we can assist them in that. Not always, but it can look different ways for different families. It just It's really dependent upon people's circumstances. You've mentioned Gordon's name, and Gordon was, uh, I believe, the first person that you cared for who had ALS. Right. It was his wife, Betsy, that you um, approached when you said, I think we can do something bigger here. Well, what happened was, uh, about a month before Gordon passed, I sat down with him, and Betsy came in on the conversation with the idea of, why don't we do a fund in your name? Because just along the way, we saw how difficult it was for other families. Um, and they said, yeah. And I said, well, wait. I said, do you want to support research, or do we want to help families? So they kind of talked about it. And again, Gordon couldn't speak, so we talked without his words. So finally he said, yeah, let's help families, which I was grateful for because had they said research, I wouldn't be here. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. From time to time, I get calls from people I know or, or former clients, and uh, they kind of let me in on what's going on around them. And one lady called recently about a, a letter written in 1956 to Kenneth Roberts, and it talked about a woman who wanted some dowsing done. Uh, Kenneth Roberts did a lot of work with Henry Gross, and um, she knew that I did dowsing, and uh, she remembers when I went out to douse her property, this woman that called me. She said the end of the dowsing rod flew off at the time I was doing the dowsing work. And uh, a lot of times I do work on land and detect subtle energies, and uh, a lot of times things show up on the land that in vortices and things of that nature that really speak to the properties of that land uh, through the subtle energies. And um, it's amazing how intuitive we are in nature and how nature speaks to us in very subtle ways. Ashes on properties are easily detected, pets and people ashes. Um, I've time and time again detected where people are buried, for instance, and people are always amazed at saying, oh, well, that must, that's a place where my husband was buried. And I'd say, oh, well, we should honor this place. And she said, oh, I did. I planted this tree here. But I said, well, we can have another little ceremony or something. So it's always important to, to realize that there's much more that's going on beyond the scenes and behind the scenes that we can't see on, these, on your landscape and your land. I'm Ted Carter. And if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Jim Graderick's of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Many medical conditions are a family affair, and we understand it. These conditions can seem embarrassing to not only you, and, but to your family as well. Now, rest assured that our family at Black Bear Medical is only concerned about you and how we can help. You are a person, a human being, and deserve to be treated with the dignity and respect. 
regardless of your situation. So whether you are looking for incontinent supplies, ostomy supplies, or just feel embarrassed because you need an aid to live your daily life, rest assured our team at Black Bear Medical understands your concerns and will make you feel like family. Visit our locations in Portland and Bangor or blackbearmedical.com to see why we respectfully keep you active and in the game of life with medical equipment, sports health and rehab products, wellness products, and more. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. You've also been doing your own work, and I know that you've um, worked with Roshi Joan Halifax, and you've worked with a, actually quite a large community across the country of people who are really interested in um, their personal, uh, in the personal narrative and how um, their own need for healing impacts how they deal with the world. I'd like to read this that is from your book from the mythologist and storyteller Michael Mead. When you step further into the story you came to live, not only does the mythic territory open, but the deep self moves and the world of imagination and meaning comes toward you. When we are oriented to the core imagination seated in our souls, we can find meaning again. Even our worst experiences can become revelatory and healing rather than traumatizing and alienating. This really is, it's very central to what you do, is, yeah. is helping people move towards that, to that core of themselves. Right. I couldn't do that if I hadn't done my own work. You know, what I've learned about myself, uh, and I still have a lot of work to do. I don't think we're ever healed. There's always more to be done, more to be paid attention to, more tending of ourselves to be done, is to, um, if I have an awareness of what's going on in my own body, if I can really truly pay attention to what I'm feeling at any moment, not just when I'm not with my families, but when I'm with my families, then I'm able to know when something is amiss. If I'm paying attention uh, and I have that in that moment of knowing I just said something I shouldn't have said, my body's going to tell me that. Opposed to, as I was early speaking with someone about, uh, and I, I think of John and Jill, and uh, my experience, that's the ultimate of relationship for me. That's the ultimate example of a relational model. Uh, the first time I met John, we just dropped into this extraordinary place where all the masks and all the layers for the most part, were enough where things were just peeled away. And it was an incredible, authentic sharing of words and sharing of silence and just an eye-to-eye -eye contact where we just dropped into this extraordinary place. And since that time, an incredibly beautiful relationship has unfolded with John, Jill, their son Gabe, and myself. Um, 
And so I think on some level that's what, you know, uh, Michael Mead is speaking to. But we have to be willing to pay attention to ourselves. We have to be willing to kind of like step in that fire and feel whatever it is we need to feel, tend to, uh, tend to ourselves, tend to the shadow, tend to the darkness, tend to the uncertainties. And it doesn't mean I've mastered that far from it. You know, I continually learn to ask for that assistance, to ask for that help. You know, if I could remember to do that more often, you know, whether it's asking God for help or my ancestors for help, right? Uh, but I know when I can do that, uh, I'm not walking alone. You know, and oftentimes I'll think of my other families when I'm walking in to see another family. You know, uh, it's like walking side by side with people, you know, in order to, uh, in order to truly show up and to continue to do. In fact, I was speaking with someone earlier in your office, and I was reminded I often get the question, how do you keep doing what you're doing? And not long ago, it was like, well, I ask for that assistance, be it from God, my ancestors. The ancestral piece is really big for me. But also the, uh, the connection I have, the relationships I sometimes have with some of my families, like John, like Jill. It's kind of like a mutual sharing. And in that sharing, there's a feeding. There's a nurturing going on. It's giving and it's receiving in a very beautiful appropriate place and uh, you know just out in your office I realized yeah that's how I keep doing what I'm doing because it can get incredibly hard you know uh, and, you know families are very very different and some have a little need and some have many needs and it's not so much whether it's little or small it's about the unfolding in that relationship you know and that unveiling of what's coming forth from them it is one of the more difficult things to do, um, the remaining present, being fully present with another human being, and whether you're doing it as a doctor, as I am, or whether you're doing it as a care provider, as you have been. Um, why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult to get into that space with someone who, even if they're not going through something significant like ALS? Right. I think, you know... Um, in the world of our health care, I was visiting uh, a friend of mine, an elder. Her name is Janet, who's 83, I think. She was in the hospital. Uh, this was yesterday. And she's a dear friend. Her son's been living with ALS for a long, long time. And quite frankly, in a pretty good place. And uh, I found out she was in the hospital, so I went to go see her. And it was one of the large hospitals in Boston. And I got there, and it was just huge. I hadn't been in this hospital. Corridor after corridor, I got up to her room, and her daughter was speaking to one of the doctors, I think. And I was just watching people come and go, come and go, come and go. And I was thinking of the doctor. I was thinking of the nurse. Who is paying attention to them? They're so, I would say, overworked. And I saw this doctor listening, really listening to the daughter. I was really touched. And it was a beautiful thing to see. But again, it gets back to the institutionalization of our healthcare system. There's just not enough heart. There's not enough time. 
you know, you have all of your uh, forms to fill out. In my world, I don't do paper. I, I really try not to. Um, we have maybe one form, and that's if somebody's borrowing a vehicle. Because I remember what that was like for Gordon, you know, in clinic one day. And this is in 97, 98. How many times are you all going to ask this man the same questions? One doctor after the next after the next. So I knew there could be a different way. And I understand it needs to be done. But it gets back to, are we willing to tend to ourselves? Are we willing to do the work necessary on ourselves? And will the system allow the institutions to do that, to support the individuals? You know, my hunch is you're a doctor that really shows up for her people. I don't like the word patients, okay? And uh, that's what I know about you. And I see that with others. And oftentimes those that don't, and it's not that they don't wish to or don't want to, I'm not sure they know how to, right? Um, I, I know uh, Roshi Joan, Joan Halifax, who I met long ago, uh, does some incredible programs at Upaya, one in particular uh, being with dying. You can't get in it now because it's filled with doctors and uh, nurse practitioners. She's had to over the years because they're calling for it now. But it, when they leave there, there's another whole sense of what it means to be present, what it means to show up, right? And there's a lot of that work going on. And until we really come to a place that we understand that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, a question, another question that I ask, because I hear this from my families once often when they receive a diagnosis, and certainly not all the time, uh, oftentimes receiving an ALS diagnosis, and I would certainly assume other fatal diagnoses, is not an easy thing, certainly to hear. But I know that it's not an easy thing for a physician to give. Uh, and I hear that from my families. And so oftentimes I ask, and yet I have some families, their doctors are hugely important, and they put them on this pedestal, and it's, and it's go for it. I hear you. I honor that. But a question I'll sometimes ask, another question, is truly what qualifies a physician to talk about end of life? I'm not sure they teach it in schools. It gets back to the same thing. Unless a doctor, a physician, is willing to do their own inner work, review their own terrain about what it means to die, how can we truly have that conversation? It's just a question. And it's a way to inquire. In my perfect world, everyone in healthcare would go to the desert for two or three weeks. You know? Um... And that's what we support. I support that work for healthcare professionals. I support that work for our families to bring in the resources that I know are in the world that can really have a profound influence and share in a really beautiful way other ways of living in this world that I really believe we know that's ingrained in us. It's just culturally we're not used to peeling the layers away. You know, are we willing to crack open a little bit, open up our heart? where we can wallow on the floor for a little bit and cry with no one having to pick us up.
but for someone to be there to support us. Ron, I know this is just the beginning of a kind of an ongoing conversation on this subject and one that I hope that people uh, will find thought-provoking. I hope that people who are listening will, will spend some time thinking about not just ALS, but their own experience with um, end-of-life issues and, and their own need for mending and tending. How can people um, reach you? What is the website for Compassionate Care ALS? Yeah, our website is ccals.org. C is in compassion, C is in care, ALS.org. That's our website. And as you are, you're going through this process of, you're early on in the process of building this education and retreat center, and I imagine you'll keep people updated through the website? Yes. Um, it is a reality. It has become a reality. This has been a dream of mine for uh, many, many, many years. And um, many, many years ago, it was a reality, but I walked away from it for many reasons. And it's come back several times over the years and now it came back to us again and so we're doing it and uh, yeah we'll keep you posted on that for sure you can go to the website in the next coming weeks and there'll be some information on there it's happening and people can also find your book sacred bullet transforming trauma to grace while tending the terminally ill i imagine through same website ccals and uh the website should be up shortly uh, sacredbullet.com well, I, I feel like after leaving this conversation I just need to go sit somewhere and think because there's a lot of things that just sort of bubble up and there are a lot of things that we didn't even have a chance to talk about in the book but I do encourage people to visit your website to read the book to learn more about what you're doing mm-hmm. I appreciate all the things that you are offering to people around really around the country but also in the state of Maine uh, patients and families with ALS and others we've been speaking with Ron Hoffman of Compassionate Care ALS and author of Sacred Bullet Transforming Trauma to Grace attending the terminally ill. Thank you so much, Ron. Ah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 137, ALS. Our guests have included Kate Goller, Roy Bouchard, and Ron Hoffman. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our ALS show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belial. 
Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Thank you.